from Los Angeles, California. This is The Relationship Show with Dr. Wendy and Miss Jenny. This is a casual conversation between two friends and colleagues taking serious topics not so seriously. This podcast contains strong language and is intended for mature audiences. It is for entertainment purposes only. Enjoy. All right. Woo! That's a big microphone. (laughs) It's a mighty big microphone. Do you know, are we we filming taping? Uh, Yes. I just love that no matter who we have, we often have people who refer to our microphones, <laughs> and they ha- it has a definitely a stimulus response factor. It's uh, yeah. When we started this, Jenny and myself, I had a microphone that I was gonna bring, and then she said, "Oh no, I have one," and then she brought this one. And when I walked in, I also had a yeah, very. Big. It is big, and we have named him. Yes, that's Big Mike. Big Mike. So, Big Mike. <laughs> so thank you for acknowledging him because I'm sure he would be appreciative. All right. So I'm so glad you're here. Uh, welcome back, everybody, to The Relationship Show with Dr. Wendy and Miss Jenny. Today we're joined by someone very dear to me, body psychotherapist, a licensed social worker, Darlene Bosch. She practices here in Los Angeles and... She also travels all over the world speaking and teaching on meditation and other forms of non-traditional healing methods, which she has integrated into her private practice. As the child of a survivor of several Holocaust death camps, Darlene took the profoundly tragic stories of her family history and has actively created something positive out of its legacy. She's worked for Steven Spielberg survivors of the Shoah Visual History Foundation. She developed a program that trained people to interview survivors of the Holocaust around the world. And one thing I admire greatly about her is she's a master organizer and networker. She does a lot of work with fellow therapists and for fellow therapists with Los Angeles CAMFT, um, which for our therapist listeners out there, you all know what that is. And she does a lot for women and women in business. She's a founding board member of the Northern California Holocaust Resource Center. Uh, She's also founded the Generation to Generation in San Francisco. She was also recently honored by LA Camped for all the wonderful work she does there. She works with all kinds of clients, not just Holocaust survivors and their descendants, but all kinds of people who have suffered various kinds of trauma. Some of the things she confronts are anxiety, panic attacks, parenting issues, stress management, sexual abuse, addictions, PTSD, eating disorders, all of it. She's developed an approach to psychotherapy she calls transformation therapy, uh, where she integrates interactive discussion, experiential exercises, body psychotherapy, and spirituality. And we will talk about that today and how people can use that in their relationships with other people in their lives and with themselves. Welcome and thanks for being here. Welcome so much. I mean, what an incredible introduction. And as I'm hearing all that, I just love amazing work in the world. And that just is so inspirational to me because, and I think women especially can multitask on a on a different level. I'm not saying men can't multitask, but when I'm hearing all this incredible, beautiful work that you do. I guess one of my questions, my first thing, Darlene, is how do you balance everything? <laughs> wow. I mean, 
I'm just so inspired to do more, but I'm thinking, how do you balance everything? How do you, is it just, does it come easy because it's your life's work or? Well, I have to say that balancing everything is always a challenge for me because I'm also a Libra and it's always, my whole life is about balance. Mm. So I love everything I do and all, every, it's amazing to hear it all listed in one place because it's so much more than I think about. Um, but the way I, I, my life has kind of evolved is I've done all the things that I love. So when I got, heard about the Shoah Foundation, I actually wrote the letter that said, you have to hire me to do something. And I was there at the very, very beginning. And um, in the la since then, that was in, until the, in the early 90s. And since then, I've, 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 or the mid 90s, and since then I've been very active here in networking and um, I love, I've always been a networker, getting people together, introducing people to other people, helping people grow their businesses. I love that, I call it a connector. And you know, not everybody is like that. I love that too. I love good people to meet other good people and to help build people up and, and share. I think um, when I come across networking or helping people kind of find what they love and connect with other people, there's a lot of fear that flares up uh, where people will say, oh, but they're going to take referrals. There's not enough money. There's not enough people. I don't come from that stance. I think there's more than enough of everything and layers and layers of creativity. I can't wait to hear a little bit of what you do. Um, are, are, you know, I, I think there's more of everything, of connecting and, and sharing. And um, if we come from fear, it just is so limiting. I totally agree. And I think what happens, I mean, for me, it's all about expanding. So, and I always tell people it's exponential and it's energetic. So if you go to any networking event, you may not get referrals from that particular place, but you will get referrals just because you're putting it out there in the universe that you want referrals. And so, and that's been my experience. I've attended some networking organizations for a really long time. And every time I do it, I get referrals, but often not from that particular meeting or that particular group. So it's exponential in my experience. And can I just say also, I feel it's also a bit spiritual, a lot, very spiritual because, you know, it might not be the referral thing, but how many times have we made really wonderful friends through it as well? Right. Well, I'm, I can attest to that because both <laughs> of you are here and I've, I've known Wendy longer than I've known you, Darlene, but instantly I felt like, oh, this is somebody I'm going to have in my life for a while. And you are, you do so many things that are outside the realm of what I was studying in school and, and my world, and I'm just so interested in it, and you are so grounded. And Hold on. As I was saying... You are definitely, Wendy calls it a connector, I call it a conduit, you're one of those people who really exchanges energy with people, and when I met you, and I don't think I've ever told you this, but it was shortly after I had taken a personal stance inside myself, one of my voices that say yes, just say yes. When opportunities are in front of you, when people are in front of you and are offering you something to to open different doors say yes and i think that kind of that touches upon what you guys are talking about too the fear that people have and i had to push past that and just say just 
I don't know if I'm going to have the time to do this. I don't know. I don't know who this person is. I don't know what I'm getting into, but just say yes. And I met Darlene. Or I don't know how it's going to look. You know, I say pay attention to the breadcrumbs or the people in our path. I think everything uh, is so, you know, in our, in our path for a reason. And sometimes I don't even know what that is supposed to look like, but I love that you set the intention out there. And so, you know, when you put something out there, like you said, it's energy. So what was your path to your current work? How did you get to, what's the, what's the short version of the long story of where you are now? Um, so the short version of the long story is I actually started doing this kind of thing in high school where I joined a peer counseling group that was run by social workers. And it was the height of drug abuse and alcohol when a lot of teenagers were dying. And so we started this peer counseling anti-drug program. And I actually wrote a grant that we got funded. And it was kind of crazy. I did all this. I was think I was 16 or 17. Oh, my God. So I knew from then that I wanted to be a social worker. So when I went to college, I studied um, human development and family studies and really focused on kids and families. And then in graduate school, my master's is clinical work with children and families. So I always know I wanted to A, work with kids and families, and B, that I was going to be a, a social worker. So I moved to California to go to graduate school because California had the best social service programs in the country. And From where, by the way? From New York. Oh, wow. And then Proposition 13 came when I graduated, although I didn't have a problem getting a job. Um, and then I worked in residential treatment for four years and then decided because I, I was married and wanted to have kids, I stopped working with kids and did a lot of parenting classes, but I also did um, other kinds of things. And and then started my private practice as soon as I got my license. And then I built it pretty slowly because I was working, always working part time. I guess the next thing that happened, I moved from, I was in the Bay Area, I moved to LA and I started to do more of my private practice. I worked for the Shoah Foundation, but at the same time I was building my practice. And then I took a class, a, a whole training program in integrated body psychotherapy. And that's where I started the transpersonal work or the more spiritual work with combining it with therapy. And I also learned to meditate through that program. And it was a transpersonal approach to therapy using through the body. So for me, my friends told me about it. They said, you must take this program, which I did. And it was a great match. I ta- I, uh, it's a three-year program. Then I was a teaching assistant for three years, and then I taught it for about three years, maybe a little bit less. So I did all of that. And then once I stopped teaching, I started just taking other kinds of classes. Always, I always love to learn. A lot of what I took was, I took a um, Awakening Your Light Body class, Mm -hmm. which is a meditation about understanding energy and the various types of energies. I don't know how else to explain it. And been on this path ever since. So for people who really need more visuals or just like some very simple things, are we talking deep breathing? Are we talking yoga? Are we talking incense? Are we talking crystals? Like I, 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 I'm so curious about what the, cause I'm not, I don't come, I would love to learn more mindfulness techniques. And I think a lot of people, uh, but I think this is way beyond and deeper than just, you know, simple mindfulness, but if someone wants to start, could you just break it down just a little bit for me? Sure. So the first part of this is um, 
actually mindfulness is part of it. I teach meditation to, I teach a meditation workshop, but I also teach it to all my clients because I think meditation is a major mental health tool. But I teach it from a body-based perspective. So it's train your body and then your mind will relax and meditate rather than get your mind to get quiet, which people have a hard time with. Mm-hmm. So it's like, an, and, and most of what I do is actually an inside-out approach. So it's it's a body-based approach to pretty much everything, including understanding energy. So I teach a lot of breathing techniques. I teach a lot of self-release techniques, which means getting your body to relax in different ways by doing different movements and things like that. And um, and then I also talk about energy, which I explain, for example, through doing a boundary exercise where you experience where are the boundaries, where are your boundaries in the world like it's it's not really your skin like most people believe unless you grow up in new york like i did (laughs) and you travel on subways Mm. then it is your skin because you are slammed up against people and you have to pull it in but in generally and in la it's your car yeah but in general in terms of relating to other people one of the most powerful exercises i do especially with couples is have them draw circles around themselves when they're facing each other and see where their boundaries are. And you start to see who, how much space people need and how much space they don't take up that they need and how people didn't know that this person needs a lot more space, that person needs a lot less space. So I do a lot of help people really understand just on a space level. Physical space. Physical space. Wow. But what's the space? What fills Symbolic. the physical space mm-hmm. is energy. Yes. It's so interesting. You just said that you do that exercise with couples. And I immediately also had a vision that how you could also use that with families. Like thinking about kids and their parents, especially as they're getting older and really start to need that space as they're separating from their parents. Like how interesting that must be to see in that that context well I had one session with a family which was the father and his wife who was the stepmother to adult children and one of the daughters and she was in her early 20s and everybody drew their I had them all do it my office is pretty big so all three of them did it and the thing that blew everyone away including the stepmother was that she needed the whole space and it was such an explanation for everyone about what was going on in the family and why the people weren't getting along with her because she really needed a lot of space. And people either wouldn't give it or she didn't ask for it. So she was always feeling invaded. And also probably resentful, too, if she needed it and wasn't asking for it. Right. That's so interesting. And how would you how would you know that otherwise? Even for herself, I wonder if she was even that cognizant of that. Like. She had no idea. She was shocked, actually. <laughs> the whole the whole room was like, "What happened here?" And it actually it shifted things a great deal in terms of how people dealt with each other. And her speaking up and saying, "I can't talk to you right now. I really need some space." Or you know, we just work out those kinds of things. So it's not like it's it, this is a very real part of how people relate to each other oh, for sure and you feel it in the room and you actually when you pay attention to it I do this with my individual clients also so I teach everyone about where are their boundaries but it's even bigger than boundaries because it's really more like a 360 experience but at least where are their boundaries so that they know when people are coming too close you feel it in your body and if you know what that feeling is like you can actually stop that person from coming closer 
And I think uh, when we're thinking about attachment, whether it's, you know, secure attachment or insecure, anxious, ambivalent, um, avoidant, I'm just thinking about, uh, you know, a baby in utero. And before the show started, we talked a little bit about uh, some uh, behaviors that mom could, moms could have, you know, alcoholic or smokers or whatever, just at the start of life, you know, ingesting it and the space in the utero. I mean, if you really wanted to go, you know, and then and then uh, when baby's born, uh, the boundaries, you know, I have a mother and a daughter who don't hug very often. And there's an assumption that mom is distant and cold and detached and doesn't like to hug. But when checking checking in with her, she always had the assumption the daughter didn't want her to touch her. And so, you know, once and that they talked about uh, that they are able to hug and give each other permission, they learned how to, you know, to touch each other again and just open that layer up of just physical connection almost before they even are able to heal the mother-daughter relationship. So there's a lot of different types of boundaries. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that kind of leads into another question. I've also heard that in some sort of body psychotherapy and somatic work, it also includes like therapeutic touch in, in certain ways. Do, is that something that you use or that you know of or what, where, where are you on that? Because I don't know much about what that is. I mean, and I'm not talking about therapeutic touch and like a happy ending at the end of a <laughs> massage somewhere in Koreatown. I'm just, you know, we all know how therapeutic the touch of our lovers can be, but just generally in, in therapy. Well, it's really interesting because someone just sent me, who's, in, who's a student, wanted to send me a questionnaire about, whether, about touching in my work. And I, I really don't do much of it because... I actually teach people to do things for themselves. But if, if somebody wants a hug, I'm not going to not hug them. Or there have been times when you need to really sit next to someone and be there because they're, re they're experiencing some very painful feelings. But generally speaking, therapeutic touch is almost its own school. There's a whole training program about it. It really was designed to start out, I think, with nurses and understanding therapeutic touch that way. And I know there are people who work with that a lot more. I will do a lot of instructing of people on doing that, let's say, with in their marriages or couples therapy and that kind of thing. I'm very big on physical touch. I think it's an essential part of development, also with parents and babies. And I think that your story is perfect with a lot of the work I do and understanding even from babyhood what the messages were about touching. So it's a very crucial part of awareness but I myself am very, very careful. So there's a therapeutic boundary for you as a professional, but there is a whole other field where people might integrate it as a part of their professional work. That's right. Yeah. It's like its own school of thought or its own practice. So I also wanted to ask you, because we're talking about childhood and family relations, how do you think being the daughter of a Holocaust survivor impacted you and, and the work that you do with your clients? I would say that I, like a disproportionate majority of my peers who are children of Holocaust survivors, went into the helping professions or medicine or anything that has to do with people because of our background. So I think that my, my professional life started way before I got to high school. And I think that 
we have a sense i mean some qualities of of children survivors is it is a high sensitivity to people in pain and also wanting to help people but the thing that i took out of it was i was always on the positive side so well everyone was sitting around saying it was so horrible and their parents were this and that i was all about what's the positive side having i think that one of the things I got is a greater appreciation for life because you know at any given moment something bad could happen, so you may as well appreciate it while it happens. Not all, not most survivors. My mother's definitely not like that, but so maybe it was in response to her. But it's really about being present, and that's why when I heard about body psychotherapy and get, learning how to be grounded and present and fit right in with who I was and what I wanted to know to not fall into that depressed, life is horrible, oh my God and be able to give people an alternative to that way of looking at life. Did you see that a lot? Did, or did you see that as an alternative, that there were some other people that could really go the other way with th- that experience? Yeah, I did. There were definitely people who had a greater appreciation for life because of what they'd been through. And I think a lot of trauma survivors fall into that category once they, they deal with their experiences. But it also, I think, maybe partially in my nature or my soul or somewhere I was meant to be this way. I was just going to say, do you feel like there can be a nonverbal kind of knowing? Uh, For instance, my mom is Catholic, but my dad's Jewish. And on my dad's side of the family, he has 27 generations of rabbis on his side of the family. And, uh, And I know that my dad's side of the family... Uh, we definitely had some a, a lot of loss in that uh, we did a, a genogram or a family tree and uh, he didn't even know a lot of it but when you look at it there I had a very strong feeling like oh my god and I'm a part of that generation generationally and I'm I'm just wondering if you feel there's also some kind of subconscious or unconscious you know generational thing that can hit me just on a knowing that my ancestries have been through that as well. I think for sure we carry it. I didn't even think of it until now I'm sitting with you and I said, oh my gosh. I mean, I... Uh... I think it's um, it's like in our DNA. And I think we know it. I don't even know if you have to even know it. But somewhere inside, you're connected to it. I think we're all... I think we have two levels of knowing who we are. One is the ancestral and who are our ancestors and what happened to them that's kind of the DNA or the genetic history. And then there's the soul history that has to do with what's happened to our soul and other lives and all of that. But I think that um, it's a profound impact. And I, and again, the Holocaust was like one major event of that generation, but it doesn't mean there weren't a lot of things that happened before that, that didn't come through that. So, and a lot of us sure. feel a big responsibility of what's the legacy and how do we do things differently and, so I talk about a lot of a lot about those kinds of issues. Can you share a little bit about trauma work um, and how you work with people with the mind body connection to help them feel more grounded? I know a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, yeah, I had some really awful things happen in my life, but I'm fine." But then they might have one memory, and it just might trigger some other things. And they, everybody's kind of looking for being grounded, how to move forward with the daily tasks that you have to do, and yet be able to process it. And as we know, and you would know more about how all those traumatic memories get trapped in the body, uh, even pre-verbal. 
Right. And that's why I teach people a lot about when I meet people, if we start with a pre-verbal, I actually get a pregnancy history. What happened to your parents when they were pregnant with you? And a very quick example is I had a client who was incredibly anxious and found out that her parents had to suddenly leave town when her mother was in her eighth month. And that she was so anxious her entire life. And when we traced it back to that, maybe it wasn't her anxiety, but just all the hormones of her mother's anxiety. She instantly calmed down and it changed the way she saw everything. And not that she was never anxious again, but she never was as anxious. The rush of adrenaline. Right. She had that automatic response system that was created that wasn't hers. It wasn't actually in her body, but she she had like a predisposition from having that happen while she before she was born. So I look at all of those kinds of things. What I do with people with trauma is there's a couple of rules. The first one is being present. I won't I won't work with it without teaching people about being present and also being grounded. And there's very simple ways to get grounded and anything as simple as put your feet on the floor and feel the floor and being present. I have a lot I have a breath that's really quick and some exercises on how to do that. And then from that place, once people can do that, then the trick is how do you look at your trauma without re-experiencing it? And I have a lot of ways of doing that. I use a little bit of NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, to help perception and shift people's perceptions and do a lot of work with staying grounded and present in order to release the trauma and not keep it spinning over and over and over again because a lot of what happens is that we... Keep, the brain doesn't know the difference, and I teach a lot about brain chemistry between reality and fantasy. So every time you think about a trauma in the first person, you're experiencing it, and the brain doesn't know it's not really happening. So a lot of what I do is helping people understand how the brain works, how to reprogram it, and how to stay present and grounded so they can actually look at it without going through it over and over. For some therapists, they believe if uh, you know you tell the trauma story over and over again, it's more exposure therapy. What do you think about that? I think it's just the opposite. I would call that re-traumatizing therapy because it yes. re-traumatizes people. Yeah. I've watched in my office. I've actually had to tell people, stop. Let's you know pull back, step out of it, put it up on a TV screen. I have all these different tricks in order to get people to not re-experience it again. So it's just signing up for more trauma. That's the way I see it. And the way the brain functions in everything that I've read is because of this way we live, it, it is re-traumatizing. And if they check the hormones or they do all this research now on imagine this and see what happens in your body, your body will react as if it's real. It's interesting, too, because you're describing the importance of examining the trauma and its effects, but taking sort of this a creatively objective position in it. And obviously in the work with you uh, or with the therapist, it's got to be much safer to do that because I think there's a lot of, a lot of people out there who repress too. And which I don't think is what you're saying. You know, it's kind of one, again, maybe it's the Libran balance. It's the one extreme or the other isn't good, like a full-on exposure therapy with no sort of safety net or Sherpa to keep you safe can be dangerous, but also repressing it and not addressing it and denying it, that can't be healthy either, can it? (laughs) You know, it's funny because in order to survive it, you often have to deny it. And once you're through it, then you have to find a time and space to be able to deal with it. So repression and denial is a actually high-functioning 
um, defense system in order to survive trauma. And we find that a lot with sexual abuse or childhood abuse or things like that. It's in the Holocaust, you know, things like horrible genocide situations, torture. I mean, there's just a lot of ways that people have to leave their bodies and at, during that experience and then to repress it so they can make it to when it's safe. So I think that it's uh, absolutely, either extreme is bad um, or certainly not helpful. And I think in the middle is just finding a space and time when it's time to deal with it. And a lot of times with survivors of anything, I tell them, you survived and now you're here sitting on my couch, therefore you must have a really good defense system. And I don't, I, I respect that. And I, I think it's really important to respect how people have gotten to the place they've gotten to without judging it and without them judging it. And then work from that place. Such a strength base. It's yeah. so refreshing instead of, you know, let's just stay in the war stories instead of celebrate all the resiliency. That experience and all these experiences you've had and, and your work, what is it that tends to keep people stuck? And has it changed in over the decades you've been working? You know, it's really funny because I don't know if what keeps people stuck has changed or the perception of what keeps people stuck has changed. So it's really tough to think back to how it was like 20 years ago and how it is today. But today, the way I understand it is that what keeps people stuck is that they're keeping their same thought patterns so that they're repeating the same thoughts over and over and over and over again. And they stay in their heads rather than get into their bodies and really experience what's going on from a different perspective. And a lot of times I find that people don't use what I call the full resource of who we are, which includes head to toe. And that often people are just talking heads and they try to figure everything out in their heads. And I think that that was that left brain, let's think about it, figure it out kind of way of being was more, I'd say it was how people were a lot, maybe less so now because people have more awareness or more willing to not do that. But I still get pretty a lot of left brain people who walk in and I have to do what I can to suggest how to get more in their bodies or more present to stop repeating the same old patterns. How do you do that? How how difficult is it to work with left brain skeptical, like left brain dominant kind of skeptical people? I mean, or, or do they come in really open already because they know what you do? I, I would say more more and more of my clients are more open, but I still get plenty of left brain people. So I often, I, I teach a lot of presence exercises to everyone because it's a really stress, people are always stressed. So the first thing I teach is how to get present and a little bit about being grounded, which that one doesn't always go over so well, just depending on who it is. Um, but then I ask this question, which actually I read in A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. It was one of the things he said, and I thought it was a really good question. And the question is this. What do you call the part of yourself that knows that you're thinking your thoughts? And it's usually people, and I say you don't have to answer today. You know, think about it for till next time, depending on when in the session. But oftentimes I'll leave it at the end and say, just tell me what you think next week. And I ask that question. And then also I talk to people about just trying to figure out what to do work for you because if you would have figured it out what are you doing here so i challenge <laughs> that side of it too it's like do you want to try something a little different that's not all thinking and spinning thoughts it's up to you and it's really up to people which is interesting because 
for them, it may feel out of control, but they've been out of control. So you're actually providing more containment for them, offering tools and techniques that people don't have. I also have a question for you. So Darlene, how do you integrate uh, technology with your work? Because I'm all about technology, relationships, attachment. Is, Is there anything that you do to use technology, integrate it? Have you noticed how the mind-body connection, your work can be jumping into te- anything yeah, about is technology. Is it enhanced by it or does it affect well, it negatively? Well, I think that I have like a mixed view of technology. I think that part of what the problem is is that it is that technology keeps people apart a lot of times rather than pulling them together. So in some ways, I'm an anti-technology person when it comes to families and how do you make the space to be together and turn off all the phones and all of that. On the other hand, I tell people about meditation programs online and there's a um, there's all kinds of different apps you can get. And Calm.com is great. Yeah, there's like one that. and then there's one, oh, what's it called? Insight Timer, mm-hmm. which is a timing program and you can belong to it and everybody registers, like when you go on, if you sign up, you can see where people are meditating all over the world. Oh, wow. And they have all these different um, singing bowl sounds, and you could pick how many gongs you want at the beginning, and it times you. Oh. It's really cool. So there's... Is that free? It's free. Oh, wow. And there's also, a, I know Headspace is one I've heard of, too, but mm-hmm. that one's subscription-based, and so I haven't checked it out. because I'm like, I don't know if I want to pay for that. <laughs> well, I don't want to pay for peace of mind. <laughs> well, Relaxation. These, these are... There's so many apps, So I and I tell people to to look at those kinds of apps. There's another one, it's the Trauma Resiliency Model. TRIM has one, and it's the Trauma Resiliency Institute, and they put together a really amazing app called iChill. And what that does, and if you listen to it, she, Elaine Karis Miller is the one who developed it, and it's her voice, and you can see how it it's a very, very simple way of creating, of knowing where your resiliency zone is, and then how to use that when you get stressed. So I've used this a lot, and that's another that's a program I want to get trained in. I haven't been trained in it yet, but I have been reading about it, and I've used this um, app with some of my clients, and they love it because it's so simple and easy to explain and really easy to use. So there's a lot of help out there on the technology side, so I'm not against technology at all. I just think that part of what happens is that people get so involved in their phones and computers and now their phones are becoming more and more like computers so people don't talk to each other very much or you'll see families out to dinner and everybody's on their phones that's the one that makes me the most crazy we've just talked about some of some of the things that might not be so great about technology and some of the things that could be helpful for all of us what are some of the tools and the non-traditional methods that you're using in your work and I mean, I know you, you do work with crystals, you, uh, you mentioned the singing bowls and the apps, and I know you have some beautiful singing bowls in your house that I'm obsessed with. Just the What are singing bowls? I don't know what that is. That's a really good question. Okay, explain? so singing bowls are crystal, quartz crystal bowls that are designed to vibrate at a certain level, so they're by notes. And, and the notes are associated with different chakras, so it's an energetic system. And so then there's bowls that are mixed with certain kind of crystals that then do other kinds of things. 
like there's one that's more relaxing there's one that's releasing so that you can get into a singing bowl is a whole other world i i just like them because i feel like the sound of them is quite amazing and they do have an impact on your body and your energetic system so that's one thing i don't use them in my practice although i send people off sometimes to go to to hear them or to work with people who work with them so I, I guess I gave you the, the, I sometimes call it Energy 101 course, which is that whole thing about boundaries and teaching people more about energy. And so I work a lot and talk a lot about energy and different ways of working or seeing your life from a different perspective. And I talk, I also talk a lot about, depending on who the people are and what their language is, about uh, higher self or the soul or God, if they like to use the word God, which I have many clients who do, or higher, uh, or what else, the divine, divine energy, all that kind of thing. So I will talk about that based on who my clients are. And there are some that come in and that's all they want to talk about. They feel they're on a spiritual journey and they really want help or guidance on expanding their consciousness and understanding more how the world works energetically. So I use all those tools and teach a lot of different kinds of things based on what my clients are curious about. And then my office, when you walk in, has crystals there. If people, there are many people who immediately walk over and pick them up and there are other people who don't see them for six months. And they'll ask me, how long was that there? And I have a gigantic, amethyst geo that you really can't miss mm -hmm. and i people will walk in i've had it for maybe 20 years and say after six months i never noticed that so it's very interesting how people are in terms of what they want to do and some people walk in immediately and pick up crystals so i don't i work with crystals based on people who are interested and ask me i rarely suggest it unless someone's already told me but if they're interested each crystal has different kinds of um, qualities and different ways of working. And so based on what the issues are, I'll suggest different crystals to pick up or they'll walk in and walk over to my table of crystals and just pick one up and sit down and then ask me, what does this do? And so then we talk about it. So sometimes it's actually a really good entry into whatever the issues are. And with kids, they'll play with them. And you know, the, a lot, and the teenagers also really like them a lot actually. And it also gives them something to do with their hands while they're talking. So it's a great way to just work and add an extra dimension. Do you do any aromatherapy or any of that? Do you talk about any of the essential oils? Is that part of that or not? Really? Well, I know something about it. I can't do aromatherapy because we can't burn anything in my building. Okay. So if I, and somebody used to have some kind of aroma thing going on and then it goes through everybody's offices and it smelled so bad. So luckily we banned it all. So I don't do that. Occasionally people will ask me, I'll send them to someone who knows more about oils and aromatherapy. I mean, there's certain traditional ones that I know about, like lavender is very relaxing. We all kind of know that. And bergamot is very uplifting. That's why Earl Grey tea is good to drink when you want a, a lift. But hey, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's one of those upbeat. And there's other ones that do other things. But I don't talk about it too much. It's It just depends. Some people will just come in with an oil and say, smell this. What do you think? Uh, so it really just depends. And what about nutrition? So nutrition, I'm a very big proponent of sleep and also nutrition. I'm a big proponents of eat well, sleep well, and exercise. I mean, I think 
all the research shows that lack of sleep creates a lot of problems, especially anxiety. And I had one client who was highly, highly, highly anxious. He finally did a sleep study, found out that he was, he stopped breathing 50 times in an hour, got a CPAP machine, which provides con consistent oxygen. He slept entirely well the first night and after a week he wasn't anxious anymore no more naps during the day it, it was like the unbelievable cure of anxiety yeah. so a lot of times when i first meet people especially who are anxious or depressed either way is i really review what they're dealing with in terms of are they sleeping what are they eating and i do a little bit of education and then send them off to nutritionists or other homeopathic um, physicians and other people who deal with those issues. So again, finding that balance, whether it's physiological, genetic, uh, really getting everything in attunement. Right, uh -huh. it makes it, if you're not sleeping, you can do a lot of things to help your anxiety, but you're still gonna be anxious to right. a certain degree. So that's why I talk, and especially with children, the biggest thing I do with parents is make sure those kids go to sleep, and a lot of parents don't do that. They do not have set bedtimes with bedtime rituals, and make sure that kids get at least, I think it's nine or 10 hours a night. And plus it helps marriages because the kids go to bed early and they have time when the kids go to bed. Mm -hmm. But it's actually good for everyone. I think people underestimate the importance of sleep. I teach a lot about sleep, sleep training or finding sleep training information for parents of babies so that they teach babies the self-soothing skills they need so as adults they'll actually be able to sleep well it's been very interesting sleep is a big issue actually in my practice I talk about it a lot I would imagine that that is something that just continues to like the sleep issue intensify because there's so much stuff to get done in a day even schools these days, what they're asking of kids, how much work they come home and do homework at such young ages, it just stuns me more and more what I hear with clients. And then again, technology as well. I know I sleep much better if my phone is not the last thing I look at before I go to bed. If I'm actually reading a, a physical book or you know, having a conversation with my husband before I start to kind of unwind. But a lot of kids take their technology to bed as well, and I can see how that could be problematic. A lot of them listen to um, relaxation apps. So sometimes they'll turn the phone upside down, but just listen to you know some of those things that we mentioned. But it also is nice to teach them how to self-regulate by themselves and detach from the you know, not be dependent on technology. But I do also think the curriculum in schools have never been harder, plus parents are busier and more unavailable. And, you know, technology then babysits our kids. And it's such an anxious world right now, not even talking about the world issues. And, you know, you're, you're thinking about the kids are, are the sponges, right? So I think it's wonderful work that you're doing because I think that everyone needs to learn how to just breathe. Right. It's so hard. Why is it so hard to learn how to breathe? You know, I, it's to remember to just breathe. It's yeah, hard. darling, why is it so hard to remember how to breathe? I think because everybody's pressed by technology and getting it done, and there's so much more available to keep track of. And I think that, like, for example, even with phones and computers, there's apps that one is... Um, called eflux and on the on androids it's uh twilight and it changes the backlighting of your phone 
by what time of day it is. And if you just do that, that already helps your sleep because when you're looking at a phone or a computer before bedtime, the backlighting makes your body think it's daytime. So if you put these apps on, at least you're dealing with getting the technology to work with you instead of against you. But I think it's hard for us to slow down. I actually tell my clients to write little post-its and put it all over their house that say slow down. Love that. And um, I just really had a conversation right before coming here with my son, who's a total speed guy doing a million different things. And I said, you know, once in a while you have to just slow down. He says, I'm not built that way. It's true. He's been a guy who's always been busy doing things 24-7. But what you miss is yourself because if you don't slow down how do you connect to yourself so there's ways of even just taking once an hour just take a minute and just breathe for a minute or if you feel very racy and you can't stop what's going on in your mind same thing if you just tell yourself to slow down which means feel your feet on the floor or get into your body or if you're going for a walk actually see what you're walking past look at gardens or look at buildings or it's really just getting in the moment. And that's like taking those one minute vacations actually helps us be more productive because otherwise we just keep going on adrenaline and then we crash. Well, I'm looking at both of you and I'm thinking you two are, are some of the most active and productive women I've had the pleasure of knowing. I think women and I, I love men and all our guys out there, I'm not trying to slag you, but I, you know, I, I know we feel, women feel a lot of extra pressure to do that, uh, to keep doing everything now. You know, you can do anything you want, and now there's a feeling like, and so you've got to, you've got to do it all. You've got to have the career, you've got to have the kids, be the domestic executive, and all of that. So how are you personally able to come back and ground yourself in in the whirlwind of activity that I know I mean I've talked to you and you're like I've got seven meetings this week you know and and I'm just in awe of how you operate where do you find that time and what do you do for yourself that grounds you and gets you gets you back to where you want to be so I need to slow down at times, and I tell myself, I, I don't have post-its everywhere, but I know that I do need to slow down. And my office, because I've had it for over 20 years, and it has, it's a very relaxed space. So a lot of times when I get in there, I will take a few breaths and just kind of calm down and be present. And I find, for me, my work isn't rarely that stressful because it's in that kind of space. So I almost feel like when I'm working, especially with clients, it's like living my meditation. You're in your zone. You're I'm happy. There is something so incredible about doing what you love. It doesn't feel like work. Exactly. And that, so I bet you glow and you shine because, like I said, that's your zone. Right. Uh, and so a lot yeah. of the things I do, I love. So I yeah. love networking and running these meetings and cooking and I do that. I love to cook. So that's one thing that's very therapeutic. I always said that for many, many years. Get me in the kitchen. I'll wash dishes. That doesn't bother me at all. I also find doing laundry to be somewhat. Some people hate laundry. I find laundry to be just kind of soothing. Yeah, relaxing because it's not a mind exercise. And I do. I walk a lot. That's the other space. And I have a, I have a dog who's 15 and a half, but she still can walk up miles at a time and if I'm not walking her I'll walk anyway and I have a dog so just petting the dog is also if you have a pet spending times with your pet 
So I have to remember sometimes to pet her enough because I'm so busy. So I just tell her, okay. And I sit down and I actually pet her and talk to her. And, and that's for that. both of you. It's that attunement. Right. And she'll come over and find me if it's if I've been not paying enough attention. Like, hey, it's hey, like don't forget about me. Exactly. But the walking for me also is the biggest thing. I, I try not to talk when I walk. I take my phone with me, and if I have to make a call or text, I will, but I really try very hard to just walk and then pay attention to, I love gardens and buildings and I nature. Know my, my nature. Even in my neighborhood, I live in you know, a neighborhood with a lot of gardens and buildings, but I always notice who's planted what and gardening, I don't do very much, but a little bit, that's also very relaxing. So I try to find things that almost on a daily basis that gets me back in myself. The biggest thing about meditation for me is really just connecting back to myself. So I want to just, I I will repeat this at the end and the information will be in the show notes, but I know you teach meditation and you have an upcoming workshop in April. It's here in Los Angeles on meditation. Well, what I do is I teach a three hour Sunday morning workshop. It's on April 3rd. I teach it about three or four times a year. It's small, less than 10 people. And basically the idea is to teach people how to set up a ritual to meditate. And so uh, it's a step-by-step plan. Then we meditate four to five times together. And what you find with meditation is that the more people that are meditating together, the easier it is to meditate. Because it's like everybody's energy joins together or it's supportive in a nonverbal kind of way. And I, I also hand out a description of what we're doing so people can take home the method. And I teach different kinds of meditations. So I teach a grounding meditation. I teach breathing, a couple of breathing techniques. And then we meditate together and do different kinds of guided meditations that I lead, but mostly let people just be in the state of meditation. So that's the workshop. It's especially good for people who say, say, I can't meditate. My mind won't quiet. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really, it's really amazing how there's different techniques to use when you're in that state that can just let the thoughts go. Now, there are so many different kinds of meditation. Are, are there significant differences between them? Or is it something that people should try out different ones and find which one works for them? Or I, I really, I don't even know where to begin because I'm somebody who... I meditate in my own way, sort of from what I understand meditation is. And when I describe it to people, they say, yeah, that sounds like meditation. But I've never actually been taught. And I know there, I've got friends who do TM, um, who go to guided. uh, TM is? Transcendental meditation. um, People who do chanting. um, The, the, and the the Buddhist. Namio Horenge Kyo. Nyam, yeah. Nyam Mm -hmm. Roko. So is there a significant difference? Is there not? I'm, I'm curious. So it depends how you define meditation. Okay. Well, one, my favorite definition of meditation is slowing down to the pace of life. That was one of my friends. Oh, and that I the like goal that. of meditation is actually to live your life in a meditative state. So what is a meditative state? So some people think it's just, you know, you go into this place where your mind turns off, which it never really does, but people think it should. And you're in a very relaxed kind of space. So if you imagine living your life in a very relaxed kind of space, but you're present, grounded, and in touch with yourself, and you're just approaching all of life from that place, that's what I think is the best thing about learning how to meditate. 
So how you get there is really individual. Everybody has their own way. And you already described a lot of different ways of meditating. And so what I do is I, I do a combination of a few different things. Like mindful meditation is probably the basic thing I teach in terms of just getting mindful. But I teach this ritual. And so I address what the body side of meditation is. Some people like having a chant and chanting because they're musical and they like to chant. Some people like to look at a candle flickering and that's all they need. Some people like to smell a smell. It's There's all different things that you can use, but the, the goal is actually not to, is to quiet your mind, not to shut it off and to allow yourself to just be in the space. And then what you do with that is really up to you. There's so many benefits to meditation that have been scientifically proven as well so that's like that is to me one of the coolest things about it how it is active in boosting one's immune system and reducing cardiovascular issues which makes sense because you're less stressed out about things but also improving concentration and like you're talking about kind of getting present in relationships so how can meditation for couples or for someone who wants to be in a couple, how might how might a meditative practice assist in that in improving relationships? So I'll start with couples and then I'll get to someone who wants to be in a relationship. So with couples, if couples meditate together, it will change their relationship. And the reason for that, I believe, is that if you sit down with someone, and I used to meditate with a very close friends of mine on a regular basis, and you do it together, it changes your meditation because it's like you have this agreement that you're gonna get quiet and go into that state and you're more likely when you're sitting with someone to do it because they're there. It's just how we are, we're human beings and we're very communal. What What if a husband uh, says, oh, this is silly, I'm not doing it. How would you get someone who one partner is okay with it and the other says, this is silly, I can't. Okay. There's a resistance. So there's a book I just thought of called Search Inside Yourself that was written by the, a guy in Google who's an engineer who helped design the meditation programs at Google. It's written for engineers. Ugh. So it's written in a sense that he explains everything and he starts with two-minute meditations. Okay. And that's what I would say. Nice. Just give me two minutes and let's just sit quietly together. You don't even have to breathe I or love call that. it meditation. That's awesome. Give me two minutes and I'll give you a blowjob. And I'll give hey. you 15. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> Negotiate it out, people. Uh, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that's a wonderful thing, But because I, I can only imagine that, you know, in a perfect world, it'd be lovely, but I can already see some couples in my office that would say, you know, it's just not going to happen. And and I think it's for fear of intimacy, you know? I think it's right. a very scary thing for working on trust and intimacy, but I think it's also a beautiful way to start working on trust and intimacy in a couple. So the other thing I do is then I also teach them how to breathe, a, like a way of breathing. I've got a million different ways and then have them do it together. I love that. So they sync their breathing up. Yeah. And so those things just shift how the feeling is between people because even if you're not in a couple and you do it with someone, you feel more connected to them. Yes. And so if they can get past the blocks in their minds and just let it be even for two minutes or five minutes, I, I really tell people who are resistant to the whole idea, start with two minutes or start with five minutes. Or people say, I can't meditate, oh my God. I said, so meditate for five minutes. And once your body starts to feel the benefit, you're gonna wanna meditate longer. And always set a timer that doesn't tick. 
because your mind will keep going, is it two minutes up? Is it five minutes up? Is it 10 minutes up? That's why inside timer is really good. And any kind of timer on your phone or whatever that's quiet, that'll just ring after a certain amount of time is perfect. And it will really allow you to just relax and forget about it for two minutes or five minutes. And I love also how you said that, you know, meditation can look many different ways. I know a lot of people just say, I'm going to go take a hike by themselves. And that is the ultimate meditation for them. They just, they're, they're more relaxed and they're escaped uh, into, you know, just looking at beautiful things and it fills their soul and they're much more relaxed for their family. So it can look many different ways. It doesn't need to be a cookie cutter. This is what, you know, on the floor, cross your legs and right um and also you can go for a walk on the beach see for me i love the beach the minute i get there i'm in it yeah Yeah. it's like i just arrive the the smell smell, that's it so there's a lot of different you have to know yourself for some people it's bike riding for some people it's running when people talk about getting in the zone they're in a total meditative state when they're running so it's really there's no there's no wrong way to meditate that's the main thing it's like there's no judgment in it it's yeah. just how it works for you. I love what you just said about like a runner being in the, that zone, that meditative state, because I think what traditionally is thought of in meditation is stillness and calm. Not that you can't be calm while running, but it seems antithetical to be physically exerting yourself and yet having meditative benefits. So the one thing about the body that's really interesting is the autonomic nervous system is like a circle. And so on the top half of the circle is physical exercise, adrenaline, and all of that. And the bottom half is meditation and yoga and all of those kinds of things. But where they meet is relaxation. And so you can get to relaxation either through exercise and the endorphins and all of that, or you can get through it through meditation and yoga and that. But you're getting to the same place. It's just two different ways of getting there. And that's how our bodies work. So that's why I'm all about get your body involved, because then it makes it much more easy than just thinking about it and quieting your mind. So in your work, what are the biggest differences or changes that you've noticed after integrating these alternative practices or approaches to personal healing with your clients? The biggest difference I've noticed is I get more people who want to talk about energy. It's unbelievable. Past lives, I do I do past life regressions. I forgot to mention that. I was going to ask you if you did that. Uh, yeah, I do past life regressions. And a lot of times I don't even do regressions anymore because as soon as we start talking about it, I have one person go right into the state without even doing anything or they have dreams or before bedtime visions and all of that. So I have a lot more clients coming um, who are looking for that kind of experience. And then I still work with families, parents, kids, and teens. And I find there's in that population, because there's more divorce and more separation and busier parents. Um, so I find I do different things now than I did then. And the kids are far more sophisticated and you, they really do know a lot more. So it's talking to them. I talk to a lot of them instead of just playing. I mean, I play too, but a lot of these kids don't want to play. They want to talk, which is fun. But before we started recording and before uh, Wendy got here, I was having a conversation with Darlene about the difference of the openness between adults and children and how children are so much more receptive to these kinds of approaches. 
they're so creative and it seems like maybe it's easier to get kids into their bodies like so we should be teaching them meditation now i know it's being taught a lot more in schools too be, right? right because they've done research and they find that when when they teach meditation to kids the kids perform better they get along better there's less behavior problems so they are teaching it in schools and um in terms of teaching it in my practice kids like to learn fun things and i make everything fun and imaginative and Talk to them and like imagine this and think about that and what does that feel like and they're far more tuned in than we are. It's it's an easier uh, road for them to get there. Definitely. I know we only have you for a few more minutes, but I I, I really want to ask about th- this form of therapy you've developed, transformation therapy. So could you talk just a little bit about that? Well, the reason I call it transformation therapy is because it's such a combination of so many different things. And you can hear what I do. How can I say, well, I do past life regressions and I do this and I do that and do, and there's just no overview for it. So everything I do is transforming, whether it's transforming people's relationships, transforming how they live their lives or their perspectives, or transforming family relationships and how people relate to each other. So transformation therapy is really all about transforming your life in many different ways and which path we choose depends on who's there and which path is right for them. And it feels so loving and supportive and that people are have the control to say when they are able to move forward when they are not ready yet. It just seems so respectful. And it doesn't, you know, it's not your agenda put on them. It's just, it's completely up to them. And it authentically shows up and you are a safe person to do that with. You know, sitting next to you, I'm so relaxed. I know. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not joking. Like as you're taking breaths. I'm taking breaths. I'm almost like getting in a tune. I've noticed every time she talks about deep breathing, you. Yeah. Like I know. And then I do it in response to you. It's like passing a yawn. It is. It's a, it's really, it is the energy. And I'm looking at this beautiful crystal on your, your necklace. Yes. What is this crystal crystal? on the... So this is um, a quartz crystal and inside it has tourmaline and mica. So tourmaline is a very grounding and protective stone and mica reflects negative energy. So I wear it a lot because it's very protective and it's one of my favorites. So I wear it a lot of the time and I got it just for that reason. And it's like you have relationships with your crystals. And is it a a chakra or is it resting upon? It's resting on my heart, but I don't have it for that reason necessarily. It just happens to be where it is, but it's very Mm. comfortable and... I always forget it's on when it's I wear beautiful. it. beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. So what, what might, in this modern world, what are just a few for, for listeners who might be interested? And I know we're, we haven't gone really too much into this, but I, you do know a lot about crystals. What would you recommend for people? Like, what are just some basic, like a few basic crystals that people might be attracted to that could really affect their lives or point of view or their space? So I'll start with rose quartz because that's one that everyone loves. It's a pink quartz crystal. It can either look like a rock, solid kind of rock, or it can be more crystalline and see-through. And that's, um, it's actually a love crystal, but it's an aggressive heart opener. So if you want to open your heart and really work on those kinds of issues and have a lot of love around, rose quartz is, is the love crystal. Um, in terms of, well, I talked about tourmaline or anything that's black. So obsidian, hematite, which most people, a lot of people, a lot of women have hematite jewelry. You don't even think about it, but it's kind of a, a, a grayish metallic looking 
jewelry piece that's very, very common, those are all grounding and protective. So it's always good to have that around, or if you really want to be more grounded, an obsidian's another one. Anything jet is another one. Anything black. And some of the brown, dark brown crystals, those are very grounding, and they'll keep you in your bodies and grounded. And they go with everything. Uh, absolutely. And they make you look thinner. Now, what? No. It's interesting because I, uh, I don't know why, but my association is if it's cloudy, if it's dark, if it's brown or black, that wouldn't mean evil, dark, scary, negative. I don't know why my mind just went there. So well, I think that's an idea we have about light and dark. Yeah. But the crystals themselves or the rocks themselves feel really, when you hold them, they're very loving and grounding. Um, but they often absorb, you know, like let's say if there's negative energy around you, they might absorb it. So then they feel heavy and you have to kind of clear them, which is basically tell the crystal, clear yourself. Yeah. <laughs> clear yourself. Hold you in your hand and say, turn all that negative energy to light. Wow. So it absorbs it mm -hmm. and then you release it. Right. Oh, that's beautiful. Sort of like us. Yes. Sort of like us in the work that we do. That's but, right. Um, yes. Any others for relationships okay. or maybe for a parent who wants to uh, up their tolerance of... Well, in terms of Children. well, in terms of Patient. relationships, yeah, it, I would say um, anything pink, and often green Love. crystals. Mm -hmm. So you have pink tourmaline; that's a very common one. There's all kinds of pink rocks, and those are all about love. What's sex? Um, what about sex? I don't know. You know, there are some. I think again, if you think of the chakra system, so the sacral part of the body, which is your pelvis, those are orange crystals, carnelian. Red jasper. Uh, one of my favorite colors. Give me the orange. Are you wearing orange right now? Oh, is that is, yeah, a crystal? Is my Buddha. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's not a crystal. It's um. It's more like a, a stone, like coral, or or it could maybe, be corals. Maybe, another one. Coral or or a, anything that's jade. orange. Is, there's, there's a jade of this color, right? It could be. Well, I know the little green is jade. I think. So the idea is, you know, is if you know, if you start looking at the chakra system, you actually can look up what crystals do what. In terms of calming crystals, some of the blue ones, there's something called celestite that's really good for sleep. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a blue crystally geode, comes like a, in a geode. There's also a, a white stone called howlite that's very, very calming. Mm -hmm. And not that hard to find if you get around a crystal show or someone who, I sell crystals, I have it all the time. And there's something called amazonite, which is, um, which is spelled like Amazon. Uh -huh. And that's really calming also and very balancing, balancing the masculine feminine, balancing all these different issues and very, very calming. So like a psychiatrist that says, oh, take these pills, would someone say, oh, OK, Darlene, um, I have anxiety sleeping or I have, you know, my love relationship is not that great. Would you also say, you know, maybe you want to put a little rose quartz in that white crystal by your bed kind of thing? Sometimes. I mean, I do this. It's funny. The crystals in my office, I, the clients just buy them if they want them. If When I meet people in other places, then I really sell them. When they're and, looking for something specific. When they're looking for something specific. Yeah. So I do have specific sleep crystals. I mean, I've, there's probably crystals that do everything. There's crystals for your immune system to boost your immune system. Um, there's really great crystals like moonstone. There's several kinds of moonstones really good for feminine issues, whether it's periods, PMS, menopause, all that kind of nice. stuff. Nice. And if you have moonstone, which many people do, it's jewelry, wear it, especially during those times. 
Oh, so, we need to give those to the teenage girls. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe they should all have or, it. Or right? uh, perimenopausal or menopausal <laughs> so, struggles. Right. It's really good. Oh. They're good. There's different kinds, and they all work together. Question: Can you buy? Are there uh, bad or fake crystals that are don't have that beautiful energy we're looking for? Like for instance, sometimes I'll go on Etsy and I'll see all these beautiful things, and I'll say, "Do I need to go to Crystal.com or Etsy?" Like, I, I, are you buying? Are you there, buying the bad energy it, of the person who's selling it? That too, but also like, are there plastic like? Crystals that are, or it's is, is rare, a crystal a crystal? A crystal's basically a crystal. It's rare that people fake it. I think that the bigger issue is how the energy feels to you. That's why it's hard buying them online unless you really can read the energy because even I don't like to do it that much. I've done it and I've been very lucky, but I can feel it. And so I get, I always, I often buy crystals that look horrible online, but the energy's good and then I get them and they're mind blowing because they don't, they didn't take good pictures. So it's really hard to take good pictures of crystals and it's also, um, I mean, I clear everything. Mine are very high vibration. I'm careful about who I buy it from, and I'm very careful. Crystals, I mean, I, they can't be bad, but sometimes they pick up stuff, and it's hard to get rid of it. So it's really hard to say, you know, don't buy it online ever. It's really more like, how do you feel about it? If you really are attracted to something, you probably, it has something for you. And then there's a whole thing called clearing. So that's something for people to be aware of. If they feel something and it's negative, they don't need to throw it away. Right. And don't put it in salt, but you can stick it out in the full moon or just hold it in your hand and say, I send in anything negative in the crystal to light or anything that's not for my highest good to light and back to the center of the earth. I've also heard you can bury it in dirt. You can bury it too. That's another way of doing it. To cleanse it, right? Why no salt? Salt strips crystals of its energy. Oh, no. Okay. It's not really good. And there's a whole bunch of people. And most crystals don't even need clearing. So another common crystal that's beautiful is citrine, which is a yellow quartz. And citrine does not pick up negative energy. You never have to clear it. Nice. I would suspect that even for skeptics, there is a degree of power of suggestion. Like It's like I think of the transitional objects that the meaning that we give something can be very, very powerful as, as well. So, you know, I don't know if there are specific properties of diamonds, right? But I think about that, like the my wedding ring, which is one thing I never take off. I don't know that diamonds have some special powers, but it's such it has such meaning to me that it gives me some sort of attachment to my husband and a connection to other things. Would you... Yeah, I agree with that. Diamond has, think about it, one of the qualities is strength. It's one of the hardest surfaces in the planet. So So, even if you don't have one from somebody else, you might want to go out and get your own. (laughs) Get one for yourself. Or you might have diamonds in jewelry you don't even realize. I mean, that's the thing about, we probably all have jewelry that have crystals in it and stones, and we don't even pay attention to it. I was thinking when you were saying that you're a Libra, I'm a Libra, as we've talked about, um... The uh, my grandmother always said like you can ne- never accept an opal from uh, or never buy an opal for yourself. Always get an opal from. They always have to be given to you. That was part of what she was taught that it was bad luck to get an opal for yourself. But if it were given to you, do you know anything about that? That one I haven't, I haven't heard that one. But I know Libras wear opals jewelry much more easily than other people. It's because it's our birthstone. Yeah, okay. and, um And also pink tourmaline is the alternative. Like when I was a kid, I had a pink tourmaline ring because oh, opal was way too expensive and fragile for a yes, child to wear. Sure. 
So we have to wrap up. I'm so sorry. We we're running out of time. So as we're wrapping up, I wanted to ask, what are some of our final thoughts here? And well, you know what? Wait a minute. We have to do dream journal exercise. Dr. Wendy's dream journal. Yeah. So, uh, Darlene, what I love is having a goals journal or a dream journal, just a place where people can put their thoughts, their feelings, short-term goals, long-term goals. They can doodle. It's just a symbolic place for them. I think sometimes when people say, oh, let me get a journal, you know, it feels like, oh gosh, for teenagers, for sure. Journaling can be meditation too. It can be anything, but um, I love all of what we've heard. I mean, I just think this is amazing. And I think if someone has a a dream journal, um, you know, maybe listen to this podcast and then just write down what resonates with them. Um, and I love also the positive self-talk. I don't know if it seems like that happens no matter what. You know, I know that as you're talking through this whole thing, I'm being mindful of celebrating life and having grounding uh, beautiful objects around. Um, Often I'll say to women, men can do it too, but you know, to take your hand and put it on your heart and your chest just to kind of slow down and breathe. And all of these are so wonderful and just crystals or I, I, maybe it's uh, writing a little bit about uh, some crystals that resonate with you. And um, if you were to have some crystals or what crystals, you know, maybe the exercise could also be go to, you know, get out of your home, go to a crystal store or a shop. Maybe you have some ideas. Third Street might have some or, or Venice, I'm sure, has tons of them. Um, yeah, or or meditative exercises that one could do. Do you have any suggestions that just one nice have one. any of your clients journal or write anything down? Well, I believe journaling is the number one along with meditation. It's probably the first one I talk about uh, in terms of mental health tools. So I'm a big fan of journaling. And I think in terms of this kind of thing, by the time you've, if you've listened to this whole run that we've gone through, there's going to be something that resonates or something you remember. And to write whatever that is to write it will also help you keep it and then be able to just work more on that. And that's probably your issue or your interest or your goal or whatever it's it is. It's like right there. Right. That's the primary thing that came up after listening. I mean, I can't wait to go into my love journal. I have a journal that says love on it and write down what I've learned. But I'm also excited to go and get some crystals. I so, <laughs> really, I'm so inspired and your energy is so beautiful. So I just want to thank you so much for spending time with us and uh, being here. And I know people are going to appreciate it. And again, Darlene has a meditation workshop coming up in Los Angeles, right, on April 3rd. Where's right. that going to be? And that'll be in my office, which is in Carthay Circle. So it's San Vicente in Crescent Heights. And you can find Darlene online at Transformation Therapy. Not transformational, but transformationtherapy.com. Are you on Facebook? Can they find you? On- and on Facebook, my page is Transformation Therapy with Darlene Bosch. There you go. She also has a an upcoming workshop, and we'll be sure to post that on all of our feeds when, when we find out the dates that she's going to be doing with her partner uh, on working with spiritual energy and psychotherapy. And so that that's going to be just for therapists, and that sounds really interesting to me. Wendy and I might want to come and, 
and participate in. Can I just say one other thing? Yes, if someone please. wants to contact you also or uh, just, you know, by uh, crystals or anything, do you have a phone number and an email? I'm sure it's on your website, but maybe you want to say it. So my phone number is 323-937-4974, which is a voicemail, but I answer pretty quickly. So just let me know the best time to reach you. And my email is pretty simple. It's Darlene, D-A-R-L-E-N-E, at transformationtherapy.com. That's great. Fantastic. Uh, so you can also find us online at drwendyoconnor.com. And doctor is not abbreviated. Uh, it's D-O-C-T-O-R, wendyoconnor.com. We're also on Facebook. You can find me at jennyjvwilson.com. And that's Jenny with an I. And I'm on Twitter at, at Jenny. JV Wilson with an I and Instagram at the Preppy Rebel. And you can find Wendy at Ask Dr. Wendy on Twitter and on her YouTube channel. And you can also find me breathing more with beautiful crystals. I'm not kidding. I'm relaxed. <laughs> I People really need to call Darlene because this is really uh, as lovely that you're here, really. And you I'm just so have a beautiful energy about you. Oh, and you're teaching you. me. I mean, all today, I'm going to be breathing differently. I know. I'm bummed I we, we lost some time because it rained in Los Angeles and everything goes crazy here. But mm. rain is so good and cleansing. It is. It is. <laughs> so thank you both. I really enjoyed being uh, here. Well, come back for sure. Sure, come back, please. I'd love to. All right, so that's it for now, but not for long. And remember, as always, we encourage you to be as authentically yourselves as you can possibly stand. And we will see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Darlene. Thank you. You've been listening to The Relationship Show with Dr. Wendy and Miss Jenny, a casual conversation between two friends and colleagues taking serious topics not so seriously. Dr. Wendy O'Connor and Jenny J.V. Wilson see clients in private practice in Los Angeles, California, and can be found online at www.doctorwendyoconnor.com and www.jennijvwilson.com. For entertainment purposes only, <laughs>